0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 18th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Psychiatrists have long believed that MDMA, known as ecstasy, was useful in therapy, but the DEA banned the drug anyway, effectively shutting down research in the 1980s. Researchers decided that FDA approval was the next best plan, and decades later, the drug will now enter phase three trials. Mike Riggs of Reason is author of a new piece on psychedelics and federal approval, we spoke yesterday. Timothy Leary was known to be an exponent of psychedelics. From your personal view, was his influence uh, in the culture and specifically around the culture of psychedelics, was that on balance positive or negative?
1: Uh, I think some psychedelic enthusiasts are not going to like me saying this, but on balance, I think it was negative. He, There was a lot of things that he encouraged uh, that I that I think on balance in and of themselves are good. He was a, a peace activist. Uh, he was a fan of sef- self-exploration. Uh, he was a, a fan of sort of thinking differently about um, cultural norms and that kind of thing. Uh, but he also was a, a, a sort of hippie separatist, if that makes sense. He saw no uh, merit or point in trying to reform existing systems, government, higher education, uh, religious institutions. He saw no point in trying to adapt those systems to new ways of thinking. And so he kind of just fed into the fears of the time about, about psychedelic drugs and about hippies, um, as sort of wanting to both uh, tear
0: those systems down and abandon them completely. The quote that uh, you have in your piece here is drop out of high school, drop out of college, drop out of graduate school.
1: Right. Well, I imagine, um, you know, I I don't have kids. You have a a very young one. But I can imagine an adult in the 1960s, a parent of um, a kid who's who's going to be able to go to college or should be able to go to college. And seeing all this stuff sort of swirling up out of out of San Francisco and some out of the East Coast in which kids are saying, uh, you know, adults um, with degrees are saying, like, no, don't go to college. Come come to High Dashbury and do a ton of LSD and being a parent and just thinking, no, 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 This is not what I want for my kids. This is not a world I want to live in. There were a lot of stories about um, the the idea of a horror trip or the bad trip. Um and I think it
0: just freaked a lot of people out. And LSD, at the time he's saying these things, many states are making uh, psychedelics illegal, or specifically LSD. And the the whole process of that onslaught and the federal intervention, uh, as well, set back uh, more. Perhaps more importantly than the person who wants to use uh, these drugs recreationally is just the idea of uh, research, the the opportunity to even discover. Uh, whether or not these chemicals had uh, therapeutic value was simply snuffed out.
1: Yeah, so at the time, uh, it's, you know, by the, by the late 1960s, psychiatrists have been aware of uh, LSD, uh, which is, com, uh, comes from the, the fungus ergot, um, as well as uh, mescaline, um, which comes from the peyote cactus, and a few other chemicals that they could be used as adjuncts in psychotherapy. Uh, today we don't see that as odd, right? We give people antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs and antipsychotics, and we almost always say, "Yes, you should. This drug will help you, but it'll also help you if you're in therapy at the same time." And so, a lot of psychiatrists in the 1950s and 1960s were were thinking about what we call psychedelic drugs or hallucinogens is the same way, and they were collecting, you know, a lot of evidence that it worked with their patients. Um, but as happen is happening right now, and kind of, I suspect, we'll will happen going forward is that once something is shown to be sort of both novel and effective, um, it's going to gain some kind of notoriety and then perhaps even popularity after that. So you have these therapists in the late 1950s saying like, hey, LSD works really well. So Cary Grant ends up using LSD with psychotherapy in his acting career. You know, reaches new heights because he feels better as a person, and then you have these books coming out from people saying, "I used LSD in conjunction with therapy, and it was amazing." And then, you know, LSD is this this miracle drug, and then people are like, "Oh, well, you can use it without a therapist. You can use it, you know, with your friends. You can use it at parties." Um, so, I would I would argue that we that that risk remains today with the contemporary psychedelic research movement in that. Every new study we see about the effectiveness of psilocybin, which comes from mushrooms, or the effectiveness of MDMA, which is a synthetic chemical, um, expands awareness, can contribute to expanding popularity, which then can contribute to expanded recreational use, which is where
0: you're going to see the most negative consequences. And it seems like across the board, if a drug has recreational value, that the the federal uh, impulse is to... Ban it and prevent research absolutely um in part because the
1: regulating it is not always a surefire way to prevent recreational or or what's more formally called non medical use of a drug i mean every every prescription drug uh that that can fix people that doesn't feel terrible while you're using it um has a, a recreational a presence in the world of recreational drug use. So you don't hear about people stealing or buying black market chemotherapy to get high or black market radiation um, or, you know, diverting prescription anti-inflammatory drugs because those aren't particularly pleasurable to use. Chemo and radiation are actually unpleasant to use. But pretty much every prescription drug that feels good is used by recreational users. Adderall, other attention deficit drugs, uh, pain drugs, anti-anxiety drugs like Xanax, opioids, as we know really well. So uh, I think there's maybe a certain amount of cynicism within the drug control community, places like the Drug Enforcement Administration, which is, I suspect that at various points throughout the history of the DEA, there have been people who worked there who weren't Didn't really care that much about the therapeutic benefits of most most of these drugs because all they could see and all they could think about was so what if a few doctors are going to use it in a therapeutic setting or they're going to prescribe it? So many more people are going to use it at nightclubs or fight over it or sell it
0: uh, illegally. One of the uh, hurdles to doing research has very little to do with the government. It has to do more with uh, intellectual property and that's that MDMA and LSD and the compounds that are in marijuana, they're not owned by anyone. There aren't. Uh, there's not a pharmaceutical company that stands to profit by getting a lot of research uh, surrounding uh, those drugs.
1: Yeah, that's true. These are all off patent. Um, MDMA was first discovered by Merck in the early 1900s. I, I want to say 1912, but I'm not sure if that's right. LSD in the 1930s and 40s was when that was developed. Um Mescaline comes from a a cactus. Um, Ayahuasca comes from vines. So while we do have a lot of prescription drugs that are essentially um, that you could trace their ancestry back to a natural compound, uh, these drugs have existed in their current form, which is very effective for a very long time, and so there's no patent. So most of the drug development that we see with psychedelic drugs comes through the nonprofit sector. Uh, Philanthropists who believe in the power of psychedelic medicine giving money to medical doctors and academic researchers um, who agree with them and, and are saying, like, yes, this is really important stuff. But, when you know, a, a pharmaceutical giant, Eli Lilly, uh, Merck, Shire, these people are not investing in this. So it is all coming through philanthropists, which kind of explains both the slow pace and the small size of the community. There are only so many philanthropists who really, really care about
0: psychedelic drug development. So the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, uh, which is uh, headed by Rick Doblin, is now funding phase three, I believe, trials for MDMA to deal for specifically for as a treatment for PTSD?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And so the way that you develop a new drug, um, you have to do the stage one, stage two, stage three clinical trials. and. Basically, throughout that process, you go from demonstrating that it's that it's not harmful um, in animals um, and then it's not harmful in humans. and then you demonstrate that it's efficacious in a small sample size, which means that it that it kind of works um, and that there are no crazy adverse re- reactions in your in your small patient group. And you kind of are just slowly scale that up. and, and stage three clinical trials are basically, Uh, the the last step before drug approval. And they can take a few years. And that's where you're taking a really big sample size. In in MAPS case, they're looking at at doing somewhere around 240 or 250 uh, patients who have anxiety as a result of PTSD. And they're going across 14 different clinical sites with many different groups of therapists going to see, you know, what happens at this scale with this many people um, who still you know, whose anxiety levels decrease, and there are different ways of measuring a a patient's anxiety level, something called a CAPS score. And so they're going to say, you know, whose anxiety levels decrease, what kind of side effects they experience, how do they feel in six months, how do they feel in a year. Um, And at the end of that entire process, which has been funded again by philanthropists to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, um, this could be MDMA, Um, more commonly known as either ecstasy or molly, could be a
0: prescription drug by around twenty twenty one is their best guess. Give us a a picture of what the previous trials with MDMA have shown.
1: Uh, They've shown only really good stuff. It's kind of a weird thing to talk about if you look at... It seems
0: fake. The results seem like they're made up.
1: Yeah, it seems too good to be true, uh, which is kind of crazy for, for multiple reasons. One of them being if you look at drug trials... Uh, for big pharmaceutical products, a lot of them the data is kind of murkier. Um, It's not always overwhelmingly good. Uh, Some drugs get drug approval from the FDA without being overwhelmingly good. They just happen to be good enough. The other reason it's kind of crazy is that MDMA was not developed for psychological uses. It wasn't even really developed to give to people. It was kind of a... If you imagine the drug development process is like, we're going to take drug A and mix it with drug B and then kind of change it to look like drug C and then drug D. If you just think of it, it's not like, oh, we need, we have a disease we want to treat. Here's the drug we're going to treat it with. It's kind of this step-by-step process, and there can be a lot of intermediate steps that are insignificant. And MDMA, when Merck developed it, it, had this, it was one of those insignificant intermediate steps. It was only patented at the time in the early 1900s because it was necessary for developing this drug much later down the line. So it's crazy for those two reasons. And it's also just crazy because uh, psychological disorders called central nervous system disorders are historically very difficult to treat with anything. Uh, There is no treatment for any psychological disorder that works for 100% of patients. Um, So the fact that MDMA as a treatment for anxiety in people with PTSD is showing the following. It's showing that their anxiety levels after just two doses... In um, five or six sessions of therapy, uh, two of those sessions involving the doses of MDMA. That six months and twelve months later, in various populations with anxiety, um, they are better. They are like fixed, which is a crazy thing to say because we have we have no problem saying that chemotherapy can fix cancer. We have no problem saying that antibiotics can fix sepsis. Um, But we almost never talk about a psychiatric drug fixing a patient. It it addresses symptoms. It makes life bearable. It makes them stable and maybe stabilizes them. But we never talk about a drug fixing schizophrenia. Um, And MDMA appears, in conjunction with therapy, um, to have as powerful an opposite effect as whatever bad event created the PTSD. And that was one of the craziest things. You know, I, when I was working on this piece um, for a reason that, that is about the approval process for psychedelic drugs and how the, the movement learned to work with the FDA, I kept searching. I was like, how, how do you explain this to people? How do you go to someone and say um, what Ben Sessa, who's a psychiatrist in the UK, says about MDMA? He says, this is antibiotics for, the, for, for emotional problems. How do you make that make sense to people? And another researcher I spoke to, um, an Israeli researcher in the UK named Lior Roseman said to me, he said, if you ask a doctor what PTSD is, they will say it is a form of psychological damage that results from a really powerful, really negative event. And the argument that psychedelic researchers are making based on the best available data, the most recent data, is that if you create a situation that is as positive and as open and as liberating and cathartic as that initial experience was negative, that you can undo that damage. Um, And thats it's kind of like I've got goosebumps right now just thinking about it. It's kind of amazing. And we don't know yet if it's true at scale until phase three clinical trials finish up. But everything that researchers have found thus far suggests that this is the next level of psychiatric drug.
0: So what was the moment was there a moment in the uh, last 20 or 30 years when uh, researchers or people who are chemists decided or or physicians decided uh, this is the way that we have to do this in order to achieve presumably what they already thought were benefits associated with these drugs.
1: Yeah, so um, for much of the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s, a lot of psychiatrists were using MDMA as a therapeutic tool. Um, then it kind of made its way out of the psychiatric underground, um, where it wasn't illegal, by the way. So psychiatrists during the 70s and early 80s were not doing anything illegal. They were essentially just working with a research chemical. Uh, which prior to our current regulatory process was how a lot of drugs we figured out whether they were safe or dangerous or helpful or not helpful is that doctors got a hold of chemicals that came from pharmaceutical companies and tried them on patients and recorded the effects and reported back to the pharmaceutical companies. Then in the mid-20th century, we get a much more robust process. But psychiatrists in the 70s and 80s were working in this kind of gray area. And then as MDMA began to proliferate um, into the non-medical world, it ended up uh, in nightclubs, started in Texas. And, you know, some, some of the effects at MDMA that make it a good therapeutic tool also make it a good party tool. Uh, it, makes, it, creates, it creates feelings of positivity and uh, intimacy with other human beings. Um, it can kind of give you a, a certain amount of energy, um, like physical energy, stamina, wakefulness. And so these, these qualities made it great party drug. So the DEA finds out that there's this new party drug on the scene, um, People who abuse it tend to abuse it by either uh, not staying hydrated, so they suffer dehydration. Um, they take too much of it for too long and experience something called amphetamine psychosis, or they can have other negative reactions because they consume it with alcohol. So the DEA finds out, the DEA decides we have to schedule this drug, it's, it's an emergency, we have to make this a Schedule One drug, which means it has no medical value, it's highly addictive, um, and, and uh, potentially harmful. So advocates of using MDMA as a therapeutic tool in the 1980s said, no, we're going to fight this. So they petitioned the DEA uh, for hearings, uh, scheduling hearings, which you know people have the right to do. Americans have the right to petition government agencies that want to implement some t- sort of regulatory change. They have the right to, to say, like, we want to contest this, and here's the data. So that for the next year, for uh, most of 1985 and part of 1986, there are, these hearings are held across the country with a, a, a DEA judge, um, who's listening to these therapists talk about how it worked. And so there's just this long, drawn-out regulatory fight, bureaucratic fight through the 1980s between psychiatrists and drug researchers and the DEA. Um, eventually, long story short, the DEA wins. Um, and MDMA is placed into Schedule One, where it's practically impossible, to, from which it's practically impossible to remove a drug. So starting in the 1980s, re- these researchers are like, okay, we can't, we can't win a slugfest. We cannot just go toe-to-toe with the DEA. They're going to crush us. So the only other way to make this happen is to go through the FDA, uh, which is what they did and which is why it's taken so long. Going through the FDA is, is about the slowest route of change, uh, particularly for people who do not have the deep pockets of the pharmaceutical industry.
0: Uh, more recently, there was an effort by the DEA to schedule a drug known as Kratom, uh, which is used by people with uh, anxiety. And it seems that that has stopped or at least has been put on the back burner temporarily. Uh, what do you have to say about that?
1: Yeah, so um, I suspect that the DEA would attempt to schedule any drug in Schedule 1 that was not being worked on by a pharmaceutical company um, and that was popular. And so it made perfect sense that the DEA wanted to go after Kratom. Here's here's uh, plant-derived um, you know, an extract that is really popular with people. Um, you know, some of the benefits are, uh, you know, increased energy. If you take a lot of it, it, it acts on opioid receptors, so it could be kind of, you know, provide you with some some of the feelings that opioids give in terms of positive feelings. Um, but the the problem, the the what made their fight against kratom so unsuccessful is that there was just no evidence that it was hurting people. We weren't seeing a ton of uh, emergency department admissions. We weren't seeing a ton of arrests. There were very, I mean, I didn't see any stories about someone taking Kratom and then doing crazy thing X in local news stories. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of those stories did come out about MDMA, which is if you want to draw a difference between two things that just popped up on the DEA's radar uh, and then how they reacted to it. Uh, MDMA does. There are risks with taking MDMA. There, it, it has to. It, it is not crazy to say that the best person to administer it would be a medical professional uh, or clinician who knows a lot about the data we've collected about MDMA over the last several decades.
0: What are we likely to see uh, in this fight over MDMA in the next five, six years? And does that herald anything good for? These potential, these other drugs potentially uh, going through the same process. Um, So the next five or
1: six years, assuming clinical trials for MDMA uh, give researchers the results they're expecting at scale, with you know two hundred and forty plus patients across multiple clinic sites, with multiple people administering the drug, multiple therapists working with patients. So if you've shown that there's a a system. Uh, a treatment paradigm through which you could administer MDMA across multiple places with different people and get similar results. It goes to probably schedule three or schedule two, um, which means it can be prescribed. So yay, right? Like, yay. If you think that we should have access to drugs that can help us um, regardless of whatever sort of scaremongering has been done around them in the past, then that's a yay thing. Now the trade-offs are that, uh preventing diversion which means preventing mdma produced for legitimate purposes than being sold onto the black market um preventing diversion is going to be the federal government's top priority Uh, the dea will insist on it the justice department will insist on it the drug czar's office health and human services that will be their top priority um they are not going to be as enthusiastic about making sure everybody who could benefit from MDMA gets it as they will be about making sure no one who fits the clinical indications for MDMA uh, gets it. So I suspect that what we'll see is uh, you, will, you will not in the next five or six years and maybe not in the next 20 see MDMA at a pharmacy. Uh, you will not be given a prescription by a doctor to go to a pharmacy and get MDMA. Uh, what will happen is that doctors will have to order very small amounts uh, directly from whoever's making it, and it, which is very likely that MAPS, the organization you mentioned earlier, has started a public benefit corporation, the sole purpose of which is to produce and sell MDMA to doctors once MDMA becomes a prescription drug. So a doctor will say, you know, I'm treating three patients this week um, or 15 patients this month uh, for anxiety related to PTSD. I need this many doses of MDMA, and so Maps Public Benefit Corporation or whatever organization ends up filling that role will send the MDMA directly to the doctor. It will there will be regulations around uh, who the courier is and who signs for it and when it can it be shipped and all this kind of stuff there will be regulations around where the drug is stored, uh, what kind of security that the storage facility has there will be regulations requiring doctors to have certain uh, meet certain criteria for how they store the drug before they administer it to patients and there will be regulations around what has to happen with the patient while they're on the drug so the the treatment methodology that maps is using, The patient comes in, you know, all the waivers are signed, lots of explanations are done. Um, The patient takes the drug. They are then supervised basically for the next 24 hours until the drug uh, clears their system. And they're not supervised by family or friends. They actually stay overnight at a treatment facility. So we are not talking about a free-for-all here, Um, you know, I have spoken to a lot, of, a lot of people who take an interest in drug policy reform who talk about decriminalization and legalization and what that looks like. And, you know, people perhaps think of marijuana in Colorado and Washington State or states where it has medical marijuana. You can just go into a store and buy some and it's yours and use it however you want and as much as you want, whenever you want. And that will absolutely not be the case with MDMA, which is just one of the trade offs that reformers are going to have to make to make sure that anybody – Um, gets to use it legally at all.
0: Mike Riggs is a reporter at Reason. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.